I don't claim that my dharma is the right dharma. It's just a dharma. There are many dharmas. And don't believe what I say. Investigate it, as the Buddha said in the Kalama Sutta. Don't believe what a teacher says. See for yourself. Investigate for yourself. Pursue your own truth. And maybe something I say will be of interest. Maybe not. But just because I say it doesn't make it at all true. Uh, or at all, anything I say is not a representation of the Buddhism, because there is no the Buddhism. There's just a lot of different wonderful, valuable dharmas. So, um, we are a um, very social species. In fact, um, our greatest tool that allows us to survive is our ability to bond, to forge uh, alliances. The vast bulk of human history was spent in what's called hunter-gatherer collectives, where you would and I would spend our entire lives in a group of about five or six adults with children, and the most important uh, capability that we harnessed to stay alive was our ability to uh, maintain the good graces of every other member of the group so that um, uh, they would have our backs when we were injured, that they would take care of us when we were ill, that if we couldn't collect enough food when we were scavenging, that they would share their resources. So um, our primary drive from birth is to connect, to attach. Now you might think that Buddhism is all about non-attachment. Actually, the word uh, in Pali that the Buddha used, upadana, that has been translated into attachment, it doesn't mean that. It, upadana simply means clinging onto something material that cannot give you happiness, trying to give you happiness. But in the Buddha's prerequisites, in both the Pali Canon and the suttas and sutras of uh, all the different traditions, the prerequisite for any spiritual practice is the, the ability to forge true um, connections with each other. And we start that process with our parents when we're born. We seek, most of all, to be seen by another. That's called, uh, in, a, in English, attunement, the ability to, uh, the child feels secure in the world and an ability to explore and a robust sense of security if it maintains the gaze, the look of the mother or the father or the caregiver that's around. When the child feels that it is seen, or is being observed, the child then can display a wide array of emotions. Whatever emotions are authentically flowing, the child can present. And the child can go out into a world of other children and play and explore because the child knows it has the mother's back or the father's back. They feel this sense of there is an adult that will intervene 
on the child's behalf to take care of it. Now, uh, what happens, though, when the parent is too stressed out, too overworked, too tired, too uh, anxious, too depressed, or is simply going through a difficult time, or has another child seeking its attention? No parent, no matter how uh, much they want to be available, is perfect. In fact, in psychology, the term that uh, is used is the good enough parent. We're simply striving, if we are a parent, to simply be good enough, which means knowing that sometimes we won't be able to pay attention, there'll be something else uh, on our minds. And so, at times, the child will seek to be seen and taken care of. It will have an emotion like sadness or loneliness or fear or frustration. And sometimes the parent that's available will not pay attention, will not be there. And if it happens enough, and pretty much it happens to a certain degree in all families, no matter how good the parents are, we all as human beings struggle with certain emotions. There are certain behaviors that we struggle with, not only in ourselves, but if we have children and children. And so those behaviors, those emotions, those uh, uh, feelings, that are not seen, that are not observed by the parent, are eventually what's called repressed. They are the child realizing that every time it gets frustrated or lonely or it starts crying or it feels, uh, it throws a tantrum. In those instances, it begins to discern, discern a pattern where the parent gets frustrated, pulls away, doesn't look. The child learns to... Um, essentially not show, withhold, push down, uh, suppress that emotion. Because for a child, not being seen, not being observed, not being taken care of, feels like death, like annihilation. So by the time we are four or five, even in the most loving environments, the child will learn that certain feelings, certain behaviors, certain impulses lead to disconnection or rejection or some form of shunning. And the child will push those down. And then when it starts to feel these entirely natural emotions, let's say in my family, we were assimilated Jews just trying to, you know, uh, assimilate to America with my parents. So any time I ever expressed any kind of displeasure or uh, uh, if they gave me a gift and I wasn't happy with it, it was the worst thing to do because it meant that my parents had failed and they just wanted their, their children to be completely appreciative, understandably, of everything they did. And so any form of frustration uh, was often greeted with shaming my parents. Literally, for some reason, my, my mom and dad would come say, what about the children in Africa? And I never had any idea what my gift had to do with children in Africa, but for some reason they were brought up all the time. 
what about the children in Africa? And apparently the children in Africa would love to have everything that I wasn't enjoying as a child. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was all this uh, shaming. So I developed, like everybody else, when I started to feel some of those emotions that my parents would shame or uh, judge or reject, defense mechanisms. Defense mechanisms keep feelings that we associate with rejection and disconnection, keep those feelings out of awareness. Are you following me? Uh, okay. So, defense mechanisms are things like uh, projecting. We project the emotions that we don't want to acknowledge onto other people. In uh, really homophobic environments, people who have very often uh, grow up in really homophobic environments and have same-sex attraction. They repress their same-sex attraction and then they see it in other people and then can sometimes act violently towards people who are simply acting out entirely natural impulses that are disturbing the people who have repressed, who simply cannot acknowledge their own sexuality. Regression is when we have an emotion that we, we don't want to feel, like sadness, and instead of uh, allowing ourselves to be sad, we start turning into babies, whining, complaining, throwing a tantrum when we start to, because we don't want to allow ourselves simply to feel sad. So, but the most common defense mechanism is intellectualization, thinking, creating a story, uh, telling our, to ourselves an idea, fantasizing. It all starts around age five in cognitive development. Uh, that's according to Erickson's work. We start developing ideas, stories, inner fantasies as a way to suppress feelings of loneliness, disconnection, powerlessness. Children who feel that their parents act in bizarre ways and have no influence, will de de devise entirely bizarre, ornate fantasies as a way to give themselves a sense of control. This brings me to tonight's theme. By the time we're adults, we all fetishize to varying degrees the idea that somewhere in the world, out there, there's this beautiful transcendent idea this great insight, and it's hidden somewhere in books, or in teachings, or in something that a teacher might say. This idea that there's some transcendent, all-powerful idea, or wisdom, that if we could understand it and grasp it, all of those negative emotions would go away. All of the emotions we associate with rejection and abandonment go away. Those of us who don't seek that transcendent idea do what I did for a while, which is drink and drug heavily for a number of years, because that's another way to try to push down emotions that were not regulated by our relationship with our parents and other people in childhood. But to a degree, we all seek this great piece of wisdom, this great idea, insight, 
knowledge, thought, way of being. We hear the Dalai Lama talk about compassion, and we're like, oh yeah, if only I could just have that kind of compassion that I would never have to feel angry ever again. I'd be like him, jovial, uh, always smiling, even though in Tibet his, uh, he's been, and so many of his countrymen have been brutalized by the uh, occupiers of Tibet. So we want this idea that will rid us of anxiety, rid us of loneliness, anger, depression, and it's why there are um, so many self-help books that sell so well, why uh, there are so many gurus out there, and many gurus, let me tell you, are acting extremely poorly because people go to the gurus and they want the gurus to be all wise because the guru presents himself something like this. Hello. <laughs> How are you? It's so lovely to see you today with this big, you know, beaming face of tranquility that says, I have never had any anger or frustration in my life. So we want to have this sort of, uh, we seek these people that, you know, present this idea that they have transcended negative emotions. Now, here's one of the big problems. I'm going to put it right to you up front. You can't. You can't. You cannot transcend negative emotions. You cannot get rid of sadness or loneliness or fear or anger. Why? Because guess what? They're natural, completely universal emotions that were there to help us navigate through the complexities of social life. If you do not have the ability to feel anger at times, then you will not set boundaries in your relationships and people will walk all over you. They'll take advantage of you. In my, I don't know what, what happens here, I don't presume. In America, it's a fairly still, I mean, uh, despite s incremental progress, it's still a misogynist, racist culture. And one of the things we, that happens in misogynist, racist cultures is that women and minority and members of LGBTQ communities are uh, shamed for their anger, shamed for feeling natural anger, which allows us as human beings to set boundaries, to say, hey, stop, that's not okay. You're, you're transgressing now, you're stepping all over me. If you try to somehow repress your anger, to to overcome it, then eventually people will walk all over you. Now, if you vent your anger unskillfully, if you don't know how to transform your anger into setting boundaries that keep you safe, then all you'll do is push people away and create probably a violent interaction. But if you repress your anger, the results are just as bad. The key is what the Buddha called the middle way, to feel the anger, to ask what would make the anger feel that we are being, uh, that we are safe, to keep ourselves safe, and then to set boundaries and to live up with them. So the idea that we should turn ourselves into some 
transcendent figure that doesn't have certain emotions is ludicrous. It's a bad idea. It's, a, it's something that's being foisted on people, and it, uh, there's other really bad elements of it, too. That's just the first. The second is that if you go to a guru who, tells, who presents himself as above you, has transcended you know, uh, things that you struggled with, then you might feel inclined to trust him and do things that maybe are not in your best interest. I wish it wasn't the case, but in certainly America there is uh, a wide array of abuse that's happened, especially, almost invariably, in arenas where the, a guru presents himself as having, as being perfect, as being transcendent, and people get are literally sexualized, turned into objects by these gurus, and but they don't have the capability of saying, hey, wait a second, because they believe that everything, generally it's a he, let's face it, says, has got some spiritual truth to it. Obviously it doesn't. Two, uh, three, if you believe that there are figures out there that have transcended you, that are, uh, that are on some other, completely other shore, that are floating about on, you know, they're hovering, they're not even setting their feet on the ground, they're like some kind of, you know, totally mystically perfected people, then what happens is, is it, naturalizes what's called core shame. Core shame is something that happens very early on in life when as children at certain times adults or other children don't pay attention to us and the child invariably blames itself, invariably believes if somebody isn't loving me, isn't showing up for me, isn't taking time for me, is neglecting me, isn't seeing me, the child thinks there's something wrong with me. That's the way the child explains abandonment and disconnection. So by the time we become adults, we all have to varying degrees, some of us very little, some of the people I work with in spiritual counseling a lot, but we all have varying degrees of core shame. This feeling that there is something broken about me. And if only, the, part, the second part of core shame is, if only I could get rid of this brokenness, then I would be lovable. It's complete and utter crap. There's nothing broken about you at all. There's nothing broken, there's nothing in there that is a mistake. It's all the result of relationships and all the result of uh, experiences. None of us are broken, but when we meet somebody who presents themselves as having no negative emotions, no frustration, no anger, nothing, nothing but tranquility, it validates that core shame. Oh, you know what? 
there really must be something wrong with me because I'm feeling kind of anxious right now. And that guy looks like he's never experienced anxiousness ever in his life. Finally, the most, I think, problematic element about the transcendent claims of the guru is that it presents very often the idea that emotion regulation, which is how we process our feelings, it creates this illusion that it, it's, it's something that can be done in isolation. This is not true. While meditation can be done in isolation and meditation that can help us learn to connect with painful emotions can be done in a silent retreat. I lead many silent retreats. But processing painful emotional experiences, emotional wounds, feelings of rejection and abandonment, when we lose someone, grieving, the processing of loss, that requires interpersonal, what's known as limbic co-resonance. I am sad, I have lost someone, I come, I sit to you, and in front of you I cry, and I talk about how lonely and how abandoned I feel, and you slightly mirror loneliness back to me. Your face gets sad, your body language gets sad, and in doing that, my right hemisphere observes your mirroring, my, the mirror neurons in the right orbital frontal and uh, in the somatosensory lobe mirror back and forth and I feel connected and natural. I don't feel alone anymore. And simply by being with you, the emotion gradually is regulated. That cannot be done alone. In fact, if you want to drive someone start raving crazy pretty quickly, put them in solitary confinement. It works all the time. Human beings require each other. That's why the Buddha made it the primary requisite of spiritual practice. Kalyanamita, wise spiritual friends. But very often, in my, I don't know about here, but in America, some teachers are sold as, well, this guy, this guy's the real deal. He was in a cave <laughs> for five years. And this guy came walking out with a big ass smile on his face and you you are you got to hear this guy and that people oh, okay you know I don't know why you would do that but you know <laughs> sure that sounds great you know I mean I couldn't do that I I lose my mind of course you would <laughs> uh, interestingly enough in the buddhist teachings Enlightenment, uh, Bhujana and Uboda, don't have this idea quality to it. In fact, the Buddha in the, um, the Simsapa Sutta said, you see these couple of leaves in my hand? And uh, the, all the students around go, yeah, they know they're in for a lesson now. And Buddha says, this is all you need to know. You see all the leaves around me in the forest? And they go, yeah. And he says, that's all the wisdom there is. And you don't need it. Because it's not about some idea. It's about the experience of connecting, the experience of being able to feel, 
and reconnect with all the emotions we have abandoned. It's the ability to be able to express and disclose authentically what we're feeling to other people in a safe way where somebody won't shame or reject us, but will simply listen, not tell us what to do, but will simply mirror back what they've heard. So, in the earliest Dhamma, this idea that we're trying to find or get transmitted to us some great insight that's somehow concealed, that you got to, like, unpack for 30 years, and then once you've figured out that great insight, voila, you've transcended, and you are now a uh, mystically enlightened person. For me, from a, any psychologically healthy perspective, it's not true. Buddhism is not a religion. It is a set of tools that allow us to integrate and heal and connect authentically so that we can live lives that are in, in some way uh, meaningful and in tandem with others. We can have some form of realization that comes from one being able to reunite with all those parts of ourselves we've abandoned and repressed out of shame or out of some feeling that other people will find us unlovable. That, to me, is the most beautiful goal. Uh, in Buddhism, graf grasping after ideas, by the way, trying to find the perfect idea, in the Water Snake Sutta, the Buddha called that Didi Upadana, and he says it leads to suffering. So, I believe that the teacher should always teach from acknowledging their own struggles. In my book, and please don't view this as an advertisement for my book, don't buy it. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's a whole chapter where I list all my foibles, and my wife, Kathy, goes, oh, did you have to put that one in? Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you which one. You can... It's, the, the, it's actually online for free, so if you ever want to look at it, you can see, you can figure out, I know the one that she didn't want people to know about. Um, I've written a lot of articles and uh, that have gotten me into trouble only with other Buddhist teachers, never with anyone else, <laughs> where I talk about it's essential for us to disclose our own struggles, our own challenges, to wit! Today, to wit, by the way, means as an example. Uh, today, after we've been here for eight days, did pretty well. You know, 90, well, I don't know what you call it, 36 degrees centigrade weather. It's up there, right? We did pretty well. No, not too many arguments at all. Good mood, loving riding around, you know, the whole Kreuzberg, Newcomb, up to Mitte. Did this wonderful place, Vibali, you ever been there? It's like a it's like a Balinese. Yeah, it's great. Anyway, had a lot of fun. But today it all became unglued. <laughs> we uh, no, we got I got in a little spat, got impatient with Kathy when we were out and navigating around and she wanted to have the address of a place and I, I was struggling to find it. And then, after I apologized, then we rode around, and things were good, and then we went to a restaurant, and 
things got tense because they forgot to bring our food. <laughs> and I went in, and the next thing I knew, I was having, I wouldn't call it an argument, I would call it a disagreement, but the only problem was the, the, the chef and me were speaking two completely different languages. So it was ridiculous. And then we were irritable uh, on the bike ride here. I have not transcended irritability, frustration, at times, you know, uh, being cranky, you know, cranky. Cranky, it's like, uh, 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 what's cranky? Stephanie? Fussy. Fussy, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I barked that, but it was I was excited. You came up with the exact right word. Fussy. I get fussy. Kathy, that's right, right? I get fussy. <laughs> Slow, patient, shaking of the head. So, I wanted to put that in front of you. I haven't transcended anything. What I'm doing is I am trying to be able to disclose, connect with, be able to own, be able to, when I have strong emotions, rather than turn them into stories to repress them, like when I have anger, rather than sit in resentment and keep telling the story of mistreatment, I just try to feel the anger and then ask what I need to say so that I won't have to feel anger again with that person. I am not some kind of solved person. So now leading into the Going towards the meditation, I mentioned that uh, we are a social species and that we are, our drive is to attach. What are the things we need most when we uh, seek that secure base in childhood? We need four things. We need to feel safe when we're with someone, the sense that they will take care of us, that if we are uh, not looking that they will intervene to protect us if something happens. We need to feel seen, as I said, and understood. Understood means that our emotions, if we're a child, if we're sad, the mother or the father goes, oh look, you're feeling sad. And the child then begins to integrate sadness into its self. It understands what sadness is and it doesn't repress sadness because it, the mother is, or the father has naturalized sadness. The parent says, oh, you're angry. Okay, you're frustrated right now. The child's, you know, shaking. <laughs> the parent goes, ooh, you're frustrated. And then the parent smiles and says, but I'm not frustrated, so you're not going to get away with it, but I see it, and it's okay. It's all right. And the child then integrates frustration, sadness, loneliness, fear, everything into its its personality. The third quality we, is we need to feel comforted. We need, when we are really stressed out, depressed, lonely, we need someone who will sit with us and through nonverbal just being with us will, will help limbically co-regulate us back up to a place where we feel less distressed. That's comforting. That's soothing. And the fourth thing we need as a child to develop a healthy, rounded psyche that will allow us to integrate and socialize with others is parents or guardians who will 
delight and appreciate every time we've accomplished or tried something new. Every time we've set our attention to do something, we need the feeling of somebody acknowledging our efforts. So the four things, and this is based on, if you haven't heard of it, it's called attachment psychology. It's what I've studied, and um, it's probably, at least in England and America, it's the most dominant right now contemporary uh, theoretical underpinning of psychology. We need to feel safe. We need to feel seen and emotionally understood. We need to feel comforted when we're in, a, in, in shock or despair or sad or frightened. And we need someone to appreciate us. So when the child feels those things, it can explore the world because it knows that there's someone there to protect it. If uh, without that secure base, the child expects disappointment, it starts to become what's called hypervigilant. It will hover around the mother or the father and it won't explore because it doesn't know if its parent has its back or not, if the parent's paying attention. And then in relationships, that child will be very anxious. It won't feel comfortable unless it knows exactly what its partner is doing and thinking. It will not be comfortable at parties unless it, it's with its partner. It will be insecure in relationships and always expect abandonment. On the other hand, if the child grows up with a parent where that adult is always depressed or anxious or angry, always in one emotional state and is incapable of mirroring and seeing the child, that child will become what's known as avoided. It will avoid intimacy and commitment. And when, if you look at an avoided child, and they have all these, count, literally now 10,000 clinical studies of the different attachment types, uh, the avoidant child will literally go off, will not stay with the mother, will not explore other kids, will not make new relationships, it will just find toys and play with the toys. The anxious child, when it's in a playground, will hover by the mother, and not explore, and the secure child that's been seen and comforted and appreciated will go out and play with other kids because it knows its mother will protect it. So, uh, the key of healing is to give ourselves that secure base. Now, there's lots of ways you can do it if you didn't get enough of it in childhood. Uh, the first is you can, of course, go into therapy. The therapy works. You can find a good um, uh, psychologist, therapist. The problem is you only get to spend maybe an hour a week with them. I do it. I, that's what I do for most of my life. Uh, but even the best therapist can only give you an hour a week or maybe two. But there's a lot of hours of the week that you're not with them. And the, the attachment styles that we had in early childhood tend to stick for our entire lives unless we do a lot of work. Because the, the attachment styles that happen when we're around age 18 months to 30 months and then 40 months get sealed into an area of the brain called the right hemisphere, the right orbital frontal, that area becomes less and less 
plastic. It becomes essentially sealed and it takes more and more work and what makes it even more difficult is originally that part, the right hemisphere, is what we were conscious with in childhood. But by the time you acquire language at around four, your consciousness migrates to your left hemisphere and all of the attachment patterns that created your beliefs of how other people will treat you and what kind of people to love and what kind of people to attach to and what to, whether to feel good or feel pessimistic about your chances of finding love and purpose in life eventually become sealed off in the unconscious. They become more and more and more difficult to change. How we change it, one, therapy takes a long time. Uh, Mary Main's research shows it takes about 15 years. That's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, 10 to 15 years, yeah. The second way you could do it is, and this is more efficient, you find yourself a secure partner. Even though you're anxious as hell or avoidant, you never wanted lasting intimacy because there's always something wrong with your partners, or everyone, you know, you, you seek some happiness with, they always want distance because the more anxious we are, the more we tend to chase avoidant people. That's one of the, the real ironies of attachment. Uh, so if you do, though, stumble upon someone who's secure and you're in luck being in Germany because your country has a very high level of secure people. I joke that in America, the level is around 55%, and I never meet any of those people, ever. <laughs> None of them come to me. They don't want to work with a Buddhist teacher. They don't want Buddhist chaplaincy. They're all doing fine. They've all paired off. They've all been married forever. I just get the, the other 45% that are anxious or avoidant, you know, who are drinking themselves crazy because their parents didn't, uh, you know, mirror the sadness and childhood or whatever. So uh, you could find a secure partner and then you could get in those countless interactions, slowly over time, your right orbital frontal, the anterior cingulate cortex and other circuits in the cingulate get slowly rewired and slowly over time you change your emotional expectations. You stop seeking love from people who are emotionally unavailable. You start being able to trust your partners. You start being able to feel relaxed and comfortable. And that in a secure relationship takes about five to seven years, right? That's a hell of an improvement. You're not paying your partner. If you are, stop doing it. Uh, finally, there's a, an even more uh, efficient way that has been developed by two psychologists, Dan Brown, Sam Elliott, in their book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults. And they developed it using the Buddha's integrating the Buddha's Brahma-viharas. And basically what it is, is we visualize ourselves as a child during the time where we felt, or even not even as a child, some point in our life where we felt we didn't get enough love and care. And then we start by visualizing, I should say, before we visualize ourselves as a child, we visualize someone who has given us love at some point in our life. And we hold that feeling of being loved and cared 
and seen and protected, those four things being safe, seen, uh, soothed, and appreciated. We hold that feeling, and then we visualize the inner child version of ourselves, the time in our life where we were most abandoned, most wounded, most harmed, and we send those feelings to that wounded child that's still there. Because all of the emotional wounds, and emotional wounds always have to do with other people, because we are social species, and the core wounds we have are always some form of abandonment or rejection. All of those wounds, unless we learn to process and heal them, they don't go away. Simply because you don't <clears throat> remember or don't want to think about it, they're affecting your life, they're leading you to be even more suspicious of people, or more isolating, or more feelings of shame, until we learn to connect with that poor, uh, lost, wounded, vulnerable, inner uh, uh, self that has been compartmentalized and repressed and uh, isolated and exiled. And we bring that child up and we say to it, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. And in so doing that, we actually begin to rewire, literally rewire, those emotional wounds and change those underlying emotional expectations that literally guide us through all of our choices in life. It might seem we want to believe that the human mind is not an emotional mind, that we're all logical species, but actually we know from the work of Damasio and Ledoux that almost all of our behaviors in life, all of our choices, all of the relationship choices, all of the choices we make about careers, all of the paths we pursue, these are right hemispheric emotional choices. Your left hemisphere, your thinking brain, plays very little role in it. The only thing it does is when you have a really bad idea, it says, no, don't do that. But all the impulses that we eventually follow in life are emotional, and those impulses are shaped by the emotional wounds and relationships we've had in our life. So this is a practice we're going to do that heals some of those wounds. Thank you for listening. We're going to do a brief meditation of first relaxing and then we'll try this practice out and then there'll be time for you to ask anything you want if after all this heat you still want to ask anything. So find the most comfortable seated position you can and in the uh, Zen tradition, at least it was in my childhood when I would sit uh, with my dad, it was an eyes open tradition. And, but in the Theravada, we do it eyes closed. You choose what's best for you. I'm going to do some of it with eyes closed and some of it with eyes open, just to see how you're doing. Uh, whatever you do, just let's start by relaxing the body. If you relax the body, you relax the... Uh, Midbrain, 
and that reduces anxiety and stress. So one efficient way to do that is, uh, let's start by taking a really deep, long inhalation through the nose, and as you breathe in through the nose, lift your shoulders up, just like you're trying to touch your ears if you feel like it, and just hold them up. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, oh, drop your shoulders, and if it feels right for you, pull your shoulders back so you open up your chest. Create a nice space. And now for the second in-breath, pull in as you breathe in, pull in your belly like you're really trying to hold your belly tight. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. And then for the third in-breath, squinch all the muscles in your face. Make a tight, pinched, ugly little face. And if you want, squinch your toes and make fists too and tighten your buttocks, everything. Make it all tight and then breathe out. And what you've just done is actually, if you ever want to read about it, you've actually just relaxed three key areas of the vagal vagus nerve, which are the area, the nerve cluster that expresses emotions and also reports on your emotional state to your brain. So the more you relax that area of the body, the chest, the belly, and the face, the more your mind will relax as well. So next, let's try to cultivate a state of ease, a mental state of arriving in life. That feeling you acquire when you travel a long distance and you've been carrying around baggage and in a cramped airplane or bus, and then finally you get out and you put your bags down and you go to that place, that beach or that area in the mountains where there's this chair with a beautiful vista or there's a park, your favorite spot. And when you get to this place that you've been longing for, the first thing you do is you just let go of any tendency in the body to want to move or you just settle in. You arrive in your life. You're no longer trying to get somewhere else or solve anything else. You're not trying to deal with any issues. You're at your favorite place, and when you're at your favorite place, you have no desire to think about anything that's happening anywhere else, because this is the place you long to be. You're landing in your life truly arriving. 
And if any thoughts come up about stuff that's not getting right here and right now, just note them, don't push them away, just allow them to be there in the background. But Just try to stay here. So one way to stay present is to try to hold as many sensations that are actually happening in the present. So you could feel your body breathing in and out. If you're sweating, feel the sweat, clammy clothes. Feel the contact you're making with the cushion and the ground. You can listen to the most distant sound of people talking in the hallway. And listen to the closest sound Maybe a sound your body's making or the sound of someone breathing nearby. In short, keep anything that's actually happening right now in your awareness. The only thing to not keep an awareness is anything that you're adding. A story about what you should be feeling, a sudden memory of things that are happening, that have happened in the past, or a worry or a anticipation of something that may happen in the future. Now it's entirely natural that at some point a thought will be so alluring, so enticing that you'll have clicked on it like a movie and suddenly you'll be watching it, caught up in the entire imaginary world. 
And when you realize that's happened, don't get frustrated. There's nothing wrong. That's totally normal. That's what the mind does. Just turn off the film in your mind and relax back into the present. Every time you wake up in a thought, it's a little version of waking up in terms of what the Buddha achieved some 2,500 years ago. So it's to be celebrated. And if nothing else, try to make your meditation a time where there's no criticism, frustration, judgment. Just allow it to be a time where you get to live without any sense that anything is wrong right now. So we'll sit in silence for a while.
So as we move into the second part of the meditation, just take a note of how you are feeling right now. Feelings are displayed in the front of the body generally. The stomach is tight, that's often a sign of fear. The chest, often an indication of loneliness. A feeling of uplift in the face, often a sense of joy or ease. Sometimes anger can be a clenched feeling in the arms and jaw. Sadness often has a quality in the eyes. Maybe you just don't have a clear mood that's present. It's good to be mindful of, of feelings and moods. Not judging, not in any way believing there's any better or worse mood to be in. There's just every mood is the perfect place to practice. So you don't have to release the sounds and sensations of the present, but now in the foreground of your awareness, like the front stage of your mind, <clears throat> see if you can bring to mind either an image or the feeling of someone you associate with care, being cared about, being compassionate, someone who's appreciative, someone that when you're around you don't feel judged, you can relax. If no such individual exists or has existed in your life, bring to mind the image of someone you associate with those qualities of compassion, appreciation, kindness. These are the core principles the Buddha talked about in the Brahma-Viharas. If you don't like working with images, just ask yourself, what does it feel like when you're safe, when you're seen, when someone cares about you? What does that feel like? Safe, seen, soothed, appreciated. What does that feel like?
Is there someone you feel those qualities about? A child, a friend, someone that you care about? It could be a being, an animal. Who do you feel acceptance, care, appreciation about? See if you can feel those qualities. Try to remove any temptation to judge or criticize yourself. Just as well as you can, try to feel those qualities. And now what I'd like you to do is, without in any way thinking about it, just bring to mind a time in your life where you felt the most abandoned, lost, a time when you felt the least care, the least kindness, the least acceptance from people that were important to you. Just allow whatever comes to mind. Don't judge it. Just see if you can visualize or have a sense of that part of yourself that's still very much there, wounded, disappointed, maybe frightened or ashamed. Just welcome this part that we so often don't want to feel. and see if you can express to this wounded part of ourselves those feelings of care, kindness, compassion and appreciation, care for yourself, every part, compassion for the part of yourself that has at times experienced real pain, an appreciation for the part of you, that same part that survived, that was resilient, that didn't give up. 
I'll keep you safe. I won't let you blame yourself again. I'll find people who will treat you well. I'll take care of you. Things are different now. I can take care of you. Just see if you can see, if it's possible, an image of yourself with that look of longing and wishing there was someone there to provide safety and compassion and kindness, and then meet that gaze with those same qualities that care about you. I'll take care of you. I appreciate you. I care about your suffering. And lastly, very simple phrase I like to use, I love you, keep going. Just send that message to that, to any part of yourself that at some point of your life you've been ashamed of, that you've concealed from others, that you thought was unlovable. I love you, keep going. So you can let go of any image, if you like. In a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And I ask that when you hear the sound, before you shift or look around, see if you can integrate any feelings, any emotions, sensations, anything that you felt, not push it away, but just integrate it, bring it with you on your journey into this evening, so that when you start returning to a more cognitive thinking mind, that you just don't push away anything that you might have connected with in the meditation. <laughs> 